Welcome to Managed Carecast, a podcast from the American Journal of Managed Care. My name is Allison Ansaro, Managing Editor of the American Journal of Managed Care. The pandemic highlighted deep partisan divisions in the United States over public health measures as fights over masking and beliefs about the science and the vaccines that prevent severe illness and death from infection with SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19, filling over into almost every area of life. That rancor extended to impact death rates in counties that voted majority Republican in the 2020 presidential election, according to a new study out this week in the journal Health Affairs. While it is already well known that areas with more conservative political support had worse health outcomes from COVID-19, this report takes a deeper look by comparing the number of COVID-19 deaths at the county level. In counties where 70% or more of eligible voters chose the Republican candidate, the public saw 73 additional deaths from COVID-19 per 100,000 people compared with Democratic counties, where less than 30% of voters chose Republicans. On today's episode of Managed Carecast, we speak with the lead author of the study, Dr. Neil J. Siegel, Assistant Professor of Health Policy and Management in the University of Maryland School of Public Health. He discusses the findings of the paper, which compared the number of COVID-19 deaths through October 2021. The analysis, which included most U.S. counties, controlled for other characteristics likely to influence COVID-19 transmission and mortality, such as age, race or ethnicity, vaccine uptake, unemployment status, burden of chronic disease, and healthcare access. With attempts at mitigating the virus largely gone from most parts of the country, no matter whether you are in a red or a blue area, our conversation gets into the impact of policy decisions on individuals, especially vulnerable ones, and previews a future that may include a nation with many long COVID cases impacting healthcare use and stirring demand for additional support. Welcome to Managed Carecast, Dr. Siegel. Uh, thank you. It's great to be here. So your study in health affairs that is coming out June 6, as we're speaking right now, it's a few days before that, it's called the Association Between COVID-19 Mortality and the County Level Partisan Divide in the United States. And I'm curious, it's already well known that areas with more conservative political support had worse health outcomes from COVID-19. So why did you do this study and what makes it different from other studies? That's an excellent question. Um, so we undertook this study largely to, to understand in a well-controlled analysis uh, to what extent partisanship was associated with differences in COVID-19 mortality. Um, and you know there have been previous, um, some particularly high-profile bivariate association studies linking partisanship, you know, at, at a county or state level with the negative consequences of COVID-19, whether it be incidents, mortality, or or some of the positive drivers like vaccination. But very few of those controlled for factors like race and ethnicity and urbanicity. And that set of factors likely to influence vulnerability to SARS-CoV-2 infection or the risk of severe COVID-19. And so we undertook the study to, to try to better understand the relationship between partisanship uh, at the local level 
and uh, these important outcomes of COVID-19, but, but also in the context of all of the other potential covariates that might also influence susceptibility to SARS-CoV-2 and ultimately COVID-19 death. And so your study also included the majority of United States counties, whereas other studies I think may have looked at, you know, not every single county. We do. We include as many counties as we're able to. Uh, unfortunately, we exclude uh, counties in the state of Alaska because of how votes are tallied in the state of Alaska. But otherwise, we are um, a very comprehensively representative study of what's driving the association nationally. Um, and interestingly, uh, it, it appears that voting behavior acts as a proxy for things like compliance with public health measures and vaccine uptake and you know, even the likelihood of, of engaging in riskier behaviors, which is likely to affect disease spread and mortality. Um, but, but one caveat is that um, we're not asserting that Republicans are more likely to experience these consequences. We really are, are careful in asserting that it's um, people who live in majority Republican counties as determined by the results of the 2020 presidential election. Um, and uh, an another caveat is that um, people who don't vote actually make up a very large proportion of the population. About one in three eligible people didn't vote in 2020. And so it's likely that uh, what's happening at the level of the county is impacting people who may not agree with the, the partisan lean of that place. And the bottom line is that your analysis found that in counties with those leanings had an, an additional 73 deaths from COVID-19. Yes, yeah. And that, that increase in mortality at the level of the county was statistically significant. Um, as were a number of other covariates in the model, but, um, but when controlling for state level fixed effects, it's about 73 additional deaths per 100,000 in uh, counties that voted between 70 and 100% Republican in the 2020 presidential election. Um, we saw a similar effect. In fact, there's a dose response uh, when looking at counties that voted between uh, 50 and 70% uh, Republican in that election as well. And vaccine uptake only accounted for 10% of the difference. Can you explain what that means? What made up the other 90%? Vaccines are a really interesting phenomenon in our data set. And I want to preface this by saying we look uh, deaths per 100,000 people in that span of the very early 2020 through the end of October in 2021. And knowing what we know now about transmission and breakthrough infection, and what we've learned subsequently about vaccinated people potentially dying, uh, vaccine uptake really only explains a portion of someone's risk. And in our study, we found that approximately 10% of the difference in death rates was explained by vaccination rates at the county level. But as a result of that, our mediation analysis also suggests that structural policy and behavioral differences in more conservative, more conservative areas were, were also uh, associated with an increased likelihood of death, right? And we think that's something that warrants further study, and we're actually working on a follow-up piece examining that. But uh, the risk of, of dying, right, while, you know, at the individual level, vaccination is certainly protective, vaccines don't, they don't solve the problem in its entirety. 
an individual's actual risk of contracting COVID-19 and dying is also explained by other factors, uh, including state and local level protective policies uh, and the individual behavior of one's neighbors to the extent that they're influenced by those policies. And so, yes, vaccines are important, um, but in the post-vaccine period, nearly nine in 10 COVID deaths uh, wasn't prevented due to vaccination. You noted towards the end of your article, healthcare workers, other essential workers, children, the immunocompromised, they were more likely to die in these counties, regardless of what they personally believed. I found that kind of tragic. Yeah, um, you know, I think it's really important to note that, that deaths in Republican majority counties aren't limited to, to people who, you know, consistently hold the views as represented by that partisan lean in the 2020 presidential election, right? Um, and you know, those deaths aren't limited to unvaccinated people or even people who are unwilling to engage in things like social distancing and masking because of political opinions, right? Everyone's risk of contracting COVID-19 increases when the people around them are also more likely to be susceptible or more likely to be infected. And so, yeah, when we note that, you know, healthcare workers, essential workers, children, immunocompromised people, elderly residents, these are all people from communities that are, are, are disproportionately vulnerable, right? Even post-vaccine and their risks are likely increased when transmission increases around them. And so regardless of, of your personal political beliefs, uh, if you live in a partisan leaning Republican area, uh, your risk is, is higher than somebody who lives in a, a strongly democratic or democratic leaning county. You know, I, it, there's another point related to that that I think bears making. You know, I, on, on the one hand, it's it's likely that individual political beliefs either reinforce or compromise the effectiveness of local policies, right, and protective public health measures. If you live in a, a a place that you know is more politically progressive, and you know e e either by partisanship um, or some other contributing factor, you and your neighbors are more likely to adopt protective policies. Right, certainly you're, you're more likely to be protected from transmission, infection, and potentially death, right? But similarly, if you live in, a, in an area where you, know, you and your neighbors are less likely to believe in the effectiveness of policies, regardless of whether or not they exist, they're less likely to be followed. And so that's one of the reasons that we felt we needed to control for state level fix effects in our paper. Right? Because you certainly have the case where uh, states have adopted protective policies that are less likely to be followed at the county level. Right? And so, you know, there are red, red counties and blue states, and there are blue counties and red states. And so when, when we examined uh, in our final model, you know, that the full set of covariates in combination with state level fixed effects, you know, that, that's where we saw that still statistically significant difference of about 73 uh, additional deaths per 100,000 people in the reddest counties. But, you, you know, I, I think similarly partisanship, and one of the reasons that, that we say that voting behavior acts as a proxy for the public health measures that you're likely to see at the county level, as well as compliance with them, is that, you know, in strongly Republican areas, you know, e even if protective policies exist or were instituted, Compliance may be a challenge because of pressure from constituents who may not believe in the effectiveness of those policies. And, and so, for, for instance, uh, in a blue state like California, 
that has a statewide mask mandate, red counties may see lower compliance, even though there's a state mandate, uh, and they, there may be fewer in mechanisms for enforcement in those places. And so, you know, we assert that it's likely that Democratic counties benefited more from public health gu guidance and mandates because residents were more likely to comply with them. Right. Additionally, they may have been more likely to trust government me messaging and to, to adhere to guidance of public health officials. And so when we um, you know, when we assert that that these statistically significant differences exist between you know, strongly red and strongly blue counties, um, you know, it's important to, to note that that there are policy factors at play that are likely driving those differences in mortality. And it's not simple enough to say that, for instance, Republicans are more likely to die because it's really people who live in highly Republican areas. And what we think is happening is that voting behavior and the 2020 presidential election returns signal some structural differences between counties. This isn't a problem that arrived with the pandemic. You, I did not know, for instance, you mentioned in your paper that Democrats were more likely to get the swine flu vaccine in 2009. Yeah. Um, that goes back know, to our nation's history, I guess, and conservative ideology and how you view public health and the role of the individual in health and all of that. So political ideology is, is and has been likely to impact health-related behaviors, uh, individual attitudes, and, and of course, personal risk perception. I think it's important to note that at the root of conservative ideologies is this notion that uh, health is an individual responsibility, uh, which the government should have little to no power in intervening or regulating. And you know, on the other hand, liberal ideologies have often promoted the role of government to enforce stricter public health regulations and to protect the health of citizens against the rights of individuals uh, who may make choices that put their health at risk. And we've seen that in previous epidemics. Um, we see that in regulation with res respect to things like tobacco and gun control. But there are these differences about individual risk. And you know, we're gonna continue to see them play out throughout the, the, the continuing pandemic as well. But there are ideological differences about, about risk and, and rights. And that tension is, I think, some of what's driven those differences in the reddest and the bluest counties in America. You end this paper with policy implications. What are your concerns about how, if nothing is done, this will affect public health in the future? Oh, that is a very good question. I didn't mean to stump you. No. Uh, <laughs> Whoever solves that problem will maybe. <laughs> I, I'm 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 glad to be to be stumped in that. Well, okay. So I, I'll say I'll say two things. Um, the first is that all policy is politics, and uh, one of the challenges at both implementing and sustaining policy is that there are political liabilities to protective policies, and what we're seeing in this you know sort of post-study period. Omicron and post-surge period that we're in right now is that the political liability of protective policies may make them more challenging to, to implement and to enforce, regardless of political ideology. And we're seeing, uh, you know, ultimately uh, a much more progressive administration do away with protective policies because of the potential political liability associated with them. In the, the post-Omicron or, 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 you know, 
in the period that we're in right now. Which we don't uh, know what to call it because it's still happening. I know, it's challenging. <laughs> but we've seen, uh, we've seen mask mandates largely go away. Right? You know, we've seen other important protections largely fall away. And when they did, uh, there was some promise in, in some places that, that they would return if rising case counts warranted. And we're not seeing that happen yet. And so one of the challenges is that the political liability associated with important protections, even protections that a majority of, of Americans may favor, may be too great to see them come back. And you know, one of the narratives we've seen emerge in recent weeks is that while masks are effective, mask mandates may not be. And certainly, you know, we, we don't see evidence of that in, in our paper. And while we're not measuring directly, one of the things we see is that uh, it's likely that in our study period, the policies instituted um, were protective because vaccines weren't totally protective, right? Um, and vaccines at the individual level certainly are very effective, but in the post-vaccine period, uh, a majority of deaths in our analyses were explained by things other than vaccination. And so policies matter. And so you know, the, the second point I'll make towards this going forward is that you know, it's important that we make policies to protect the most vulnerable. And that's, it's not clear that we're doing that right now. And you know, while those policies are important in red counties, they're, they're important everywhere, right? Because this isn't a red county or a blue county phenomenon. This isn't a red state or a blue state phenomenon. This is a national phenomenon, right? And this is something that we're seeing in every community. Uh, and while we don't analyze in this paper, in the subsequent paper we do, the impact that these policies had on the most vulnerable groups in these counties, right? Um, you know, in, including people who are medically vulnerable by age, but, but also from communities most impacted. Uh, so Black and Latino residents uh, of counties by partisanship, for instance, uh, whose circumstances may be much more challenging and who, whose outcomes may be worse than their white neighbors. And that's something that, again, we're continuing to examine, but it's important that policies protect the most vulnerable. I feel like I can't go a day without seeing a headline about how the public is tired of masks and tired of COVID and tired of restrictions and hooray, it's another summer. And in that, I don't see in there anything about any partisan or political difference. I think it's no. across at that point, but your study looked at a different time period. So we did. We, so, yeah, we looked at the, at the pre-Omicron um, period really through, through Delta. And, you know, that the, the framing of important protections like face masks, for instance, as onerous, I think is challenging because face masks ultimately aren't a partisan issue. They're a, they're a public health protective issue. But similarly, we have seen now in the, in, in the, the Omicron period, an alignment between red and blue places around policies that protect the vulnerable like face masks. You know, I, I will say an, an interesting finding of our analysis, or at least interesting to me, is that in the early months of the pandemic and through the end of 2020, it's likely that mitigation strategies were pretty similar between Republican and Democratic counties. So for instance, uh, lockdowns or mask requirements or school and business closures, things like indoor capacity limits, uh, were, were largely similar because we didn't have other options. And consequently, the experience of the pandemic might not have been markedly different between red and blue counties in that period. But after vaccines became available, the trajectory of Republican and Democratic counties diverged pretty visibly. Right? And you know, that led us to believe that political beliefs altered compliance with public health mandates in that post-vaccine period. Well, at the same time, 
they likely influenced vaccine uptake as well. And the challenge there is that uh, while vaccines are protective, enthusiasm for vaccines likely allowed authorities to prematurely lift protections. And what we've seen now that uh, immunity is waning and we've ceased to move the needle on new vaccinations and we're struggling uh, with third doses in people for whom they're indicated is that vaccines aren't going to solve this problem. And unfortunately, at about this time last year, our beliefs were very different. And, and so the unfortunate consequence of this is that it's very likely that we'll see some convergence between more progressive and less progressive places because policies are starting to align again. Um, and you know, we're, we're not at the point where, where policies are markedly different in the, the most left-leaning and the most right-leaning areas. I think Dr. Peter Hotez, who we interviewed last year, is writing a book about anti-science aggression, which he started talking about last year, probably before last year, but really started talking about it last year. And in your paper, you talk about the need for you know, clear communication from the government and authorities and to you know, convince people about what you're talking about. How would yeah. you, this is not in your paper, but if you could design a message, like how would you get this out to combat anti-science um, aggression? That's another stumper, sorry. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's challenging, right? Because misinformation is particularly pernicious and it builds on long held beliefs and you know, distrust of the scientific, governmental or medical establishment and combating that and building trust at the level of the community is a very challenging thing. We've seen that though, um, solved in places where members of communities from in community um, push pro-science and pro-social messages. Right? And you know, this, this strongly suggests that this is an area that we should continue investing in and we should continue studying because there are messages that are effective. Right? Um, I, I think we just, we don't have a comprehensive set of those yet. And certainly the, the the period that we're in right now suggests that the pandemic will be with us for much longer. And so it's not too late to try to move the needle. We have this, this second order problem of people's waning immunity, right? Whether it's naturally derived or through vaccination. Uh, and so encouraging sustained protective practices, both at the individual and the community level, are gonna, are gonna continue to be important. And so solving that problem is not a past tense phenomenon. It's something that we need to continue to, to try to move the needle on for, for this and the next pandemic. Um, as to a solution, you know, clearer science-based guidance, I think is an important thing, um, but trying to understand how to meet people where they live is even more so, right? And we're not at that point right now where everybody who is willing to be vaccinated has been, right? It's possible that there are people in that, in that movable middle, right? Certainly, uh, there, there are people who are enthusiastic about vaccination, who are enthusiastic about third doses, and are now, now anticipating fourth doses. There's another set of society that has decided that, that no vaccine right, is likely acceptable to them. But there are people in the middle who, just, who we haven't reached yet, and continuing to move the needle for them, I think, is an important thing. I will say, though, that, that there's a solution to this problem that, that's not vaccine-mediated, and one that is of uh, increasing importance day by day, right? and that is reshaping society in ways that are more protective for everybody regardless of vaccination status 
right? Because vaccines are effective after you've been exposed, but preventing exposure is potentially even more so. And so improving ventilation, right? Uh, making masks more available, you know, bringing back mask requirements uh, when transmission warrants, extending mask requirements for, for public transit, for instance, like uh, all of those measures protect people from exposure. Vaccines certainly help keep you out of the hospital, but your mask and ventilation keeps the virus out of your lungs. And if we can't move the needle or if we're moving the needle too slowly on vaccine uptake, there are certainly other things that we can do uh, to limit exposure risk in communities and things that we should continue doing you know, in parallel with trying to increase the number of vaccinated Americans. Because again, our mediation analysis reflect that even in the post-vaccine period, uh, vaccination only explains 10% of the difference between red and blue counties in terms of mortality. This was really interesting and slightly depressing, but is there anything that I forgot to ask you or that you want to add? Sorry about the depressing part. Of it. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> part, of the, part of the job, right? Yeah. So, I, I mean, there are a couple of points that I made that I, I think are really important, some of which, uh, you know, we highlighted in the paper, but per perhaps not, not as strongly now as we, as we should have. All right. And, the, and the, the first is that, you know, it's, it's, it's not only Republican voters that are, that are at risk. And so certainly uh, I am cautious about suggesting that this is not a blue county phenomenon anymore um, because this is a problem everywhere, not just in red counties. Uh, and it's also important to acknowledge that uh, there are factors that influence likely voting, right? The likelihood of voting increases as income increases. Uh, and you know, it's also likely that people with greater health risk are less likely to vote. Um, and you know, on, on average, there's evidence that exists that people who don't vote are also less likely to be vaccinated. And so, um, you know, you, you certainly potentially have the case, especially in, in some of the reddest counties, where um, the plurality uh, of residents in a county, right, um, certainly doesn't represent everybody in that county, right. And it's also important to acknowledge that you know there are many people in red counties who aren't eligible to vote, right, because they're 18. Uh, sorry, they're, they're younger than age 18, or they may be ineligible to, to vote for other reasons, um, who are still subject to both the policies at the local level um, and the community in which they live. And so, you know, I really do feel that it's important to, to acknowledge that while this is a red county phenomenon in, in terms of these differences, it's not only red counties that are in, impacted, and it's not only Republicans living in those counties who are impacted, um, certainly everybody in these counties is subject to an increased level of risk. I think that's the, the, the key takeaway. I, I obviously, I was, I was a little surprised uh, at the results of our mediation analysis, but it is consistent with the, the, the notion that policy matters. Policy really does matter when it comes to prevention. And evidence is mounting that vaccination isn't the only solution to the pandemic. And in fact, we know pretty clearly now that it is not. Uh, and it, it's of paramount importance in parallel with policies that protect the most vulnerable. Well, thank you so much for this. I'm looking forward to your next paper. When is it coming out? Do you know? My pleasure. Hopefully later this year. Uh, we're writing about, and so our next paper is, is about the impact of partisanship on, on minorities who live in red and blue counties. And so to, to the extent that that partisanship, well, to the extent that voting behavior is a, is a marker for the likelihood of, of protective policies existing um, or adherence to them. 
it, it may very well be the case that um, the most vulnerable are even more vulnerable in places where there's low adherence policies. It may also be the case that there's not a statistically significant difference between red and blue counties. And so we'll know very soon what the impact of partisanship uh, and potentially policy is on vulnerability to the people most likely to be susceptible to bad outcomes from COVID-19. We have another paper relatedly that we're just starting on that that attempts to estimate the, the disability burden of long COVID. And one of the things that we don't account for in this paper, I mean, certainly we account for the number of cases, but there have been so many COVID cases that it's likely to change the, the health services landscape to the extent that, that people develop long-term chronic conditions associated with their primary SARS-CoV-2 infection. And so, uh, you know, demand for health services. And, you know, it's when we say unprecedented, we really mean it. This is an unprecedented health and public health crisis. And if one in every three people infected with COVID-19 develops some longstanding set of symptoms, it's very likely that they're going to need additional care and some subset, you know, may end up permanently disabled as a result of their infection. And it's really going to change the health services landscape in America. And so, you know, could be even more depressing. We're continuing to explore that. Well, I know what to say to that. I wonder if that will change the trajectory in any way, because if people in, say, more rural areas or more conservative areas, people who are more poor, they already have more serious, chronic, expensive conditions that aren't being treated. I wonder if the frightening... Yeah, it may, it, and it may very well be the case that places that have less progressive policies towards disability and disability insurance are bearing the, the greater burden uh, of COVID-19 associated disability because of the absence of protective policies, right? And in places where, um, you know, where prevention wasn't prioritized in the same way, in places where vaccine uptake is still lower than the national average, you're also more likely to see less progressive policies with respect to disability. And so while disability insurance is principally federally funded, um, there certainly are important state level supports that help people before federal disability insurance kicks in. And so the experience of a long COVID patient somewhere in, in, a, in a state that has less progressive policy is likely to be quite a bit different than, than a similar person in a state that has more progressive policy. That's, that's, a, that's a future paper as well. But I guess, and on a bright note, the only cheery thought is that health policy researchers will be busy for the rest of their careers. So, yeah. And, you know, I, I mean, if there yeah. is, um, I think along with that, if there is a, an, an important takeaway from this is that policy matters, right? Right. Policy really does because it impacts the health of individuals in a really direct way. And, you know, protective policies protect people. And that, that's an important takeaway from this. And that, to the extent that the federal government is able, enacting and enforcing those policies is important. But states and counties have a lot of say in the policies that protect uh, the residents in their jurisdictions. And you know, it's very, it's very important to be mindful of the, um, the extent to which the most vulnerable are protected. Because you can make policy for um, the American of average risk, right? Or you can make policy for the most vulnerable person. And public health fundamentally is, is driven by protecting those most vulnerable among us. Well, thank you again. I really appreciate your time to explain my this. Pleasure. I will also say this was very much a team effort and my, my co-authors and I worked together on this uh, and I hope I, hope I did well representing them as well. And so I do wanna acknowledge the contributions of my co-authors.
three others from the University of Maryland and one from the University of California, Irvine. Yeah. So Dahai Yue, uh, L. Pope, and Ren Hao Wang are my colleagues at the University of Maryland, and Dylan Roby is uh, my colleague at the University of California, Irvine. Okay. Well, thank you, and thank you to them. And perhaps I can talk to you for your next paper. Looking forward to it. Thank right. you so much. I appreciate right. your time. All right. Thanks. Bye. For all of us at AJMC, thanks for listening. To learn more about these issues, visit AJMC.com or see the show notes. To get in touch with us, email info at AJMC.com or follow us on Twitter at AJMC underscore journal. And if you like the podcast, don't forget to subscribe and rate us.